thank you very much. Uh, so I have to ask you to indulge me a little bit. I've, I, uh, they told me I could speak for as little or as long as I wish to. I'm not used to speaking, I'm not used to lecturing. In fact, when you think of the word lecture, you don't really think of an enjoyable experience. <laughs> you think, please don't give me a lecture. Please stop lecturing me. And then he gave me a big, long lecture. <laughs> and here comes another lecture. So, however, I have gone to lectures and enjoyed them, so I hope you'll enjoy it. So I really was not sure how long I would speak or what I would speak about. I won't speak for too long, but I am going to try to speak in the direct address, which is not my way. I'm used to making up, uh, I'm not, I'm okay, I'm all right at writing prose. I'm not great at it. I'm not used to just saying things that I think. I'm used to pretending that two imaginary people are, one of them is saying part of what I think and the other one is saying <laughs> everything that I can think of in opposition to it. And then I say, ooh, um, look how broad-minded I am. <laughs> so here I'm going to take a chance and it does make me a bit apprehensive to, and, and talk a little bit about directly. Um, it will come around to screenwriting, but it doesn't start there. And if it gets too vague and boring, we'll just, I'll, I'll go like that, and then, then the questions, we'll, we'll do questions and answers, which I'm, I'm better at. Uh, I was thinking about, I, I, I came to London, I'm going to talk a little bit about being in London, um, and it will, it will come to the point eventually. Um, I first came to London, and I, I want to talk, I was thinking about um, imagination and the, the how our minds function through imagination and with imagination as the primary means through which we experience the world because there's nothing else, there's, not, there's, no, there, it, there's no direct connection between what we see in front of us and what we experience inside of our minds that is not in some way perforated through or affected by and sometimes completely altered by our imaginations. In the case of a of a normal person, in the case of a psychotic person, the, the, the permutations and the various paths that, that reality goes through before it gets to you are, are extreme um, to the point where it doesn't really matter what's out there because something else is going to show up in here. This is something that, uh, in its normal scope, influences everybody in their private life and uh, influences all artists or artistic people or creative people or all kinds of people. You have to, if you're repairing a car, you have to have a bit of an imagination about what might be wrong with it. If you're trying to write a screenplay that's supposed to be about human beings, you have to have some imagination about what those human beings are like. And uh, in order to enjoy a film or a screenplay, we'll stick to that for the most part, your imagination has to be able to believe that what you're seeing is real or has to not mind the parts that aren't real or has to enjoy the parts that are fantasy because they're fantasy. Um, so with that as a framework, I just want to talk a little bit about what happened to me the first time I came to London when I was 22. I had been here for a couple of days before that. But um, nothing interesting happened to me, by the way. I'm just going to talk about it. <laughs> um, I was an intern. Um, I, I went to New York University, and I was uh, to spend four or five months being an intern at the, in the literary department of the Royal Court Theater because I was studying playwriting. And um, now, for me, London and England had a are are, are a big part of my uh, mind because when I was growing up, m most of the children from my background read English children's stories, and everyone from my background grew up 
uh, reading English novels, and uh, I was brought up watching not just American films, but English films. So those things, so the England and the London that I saw through stories and films was very much a part of who I was by the time I first saw London, the actual London, as it was in 1985, um, when I was 22. And so I was very excited to be here. And the first thing that happened to me was that I noticed that for the first time in my life, because I'm a, I'm a male, white, New York, Manhattan dweller, which means I'm in the kind of the evolu socially evolutionary peak position you can be in. Uh, in terms of feeling comfortable in your environment. Uh, as when you travel around the United States, if you're from New York, you feel like you're from the everywhere else but New York is the sticks. Uh, it's not true, but that's how you feel. You're from New York, you're in Idaho, they're in Idaho, you're from New York. So you feel very comfortable going pretty much anywhere, even though you're aware that after a while being from New York doesn't mean you've seen the rest of the world. You have the illusion that you've seen the rest of the world because you think the rest of the world should be in New York. <laughs> You grew up in a small town in Kansas, you know you've grown up in a small town in Kansas, and part of that is knowing that there's a, much, that there's a lot more out there. When you're in New York for your whole life, uh, and some of this may be generalized and some of it may be pertinent just to myself, you feel that you don't need to see anything else because you've seen New York and you know New York and you know where all the buildings are and it doesn't bother you and you don't mind having nine million people around you. So you feel pretty comfortable. So the first thing that happened to me when I came to London and started my very easygoing work at the Royal Court, where they were all very nice to me, was that I noticed the first time I felt like an American and not a person. <laughs> um, and and we, we are people, as, as most of you know. <laughs> but I felt like an, I felt I was, I, I was suddenly very aware, as I am at this very moment, of my, the way I speak. Um, and that's right now it's partly because I'm speaking in public and I'm mic'd and partly because I'm speaking to a largely uh, British audience um, and I suddenly and I wasn't just so I was aware of my voice in a way that I wasn't used to being aware of and I was aware of the turn of phrase that I used which I wasn't used to and also my friends at the Royal Court saw me as an American and I, I was only 22 and I'd never seen myself as an American, I'd seen myself as a person. And I realized that I was an American person but it's, it's just, it was just a, an odd experience. Um, and uh, then I, in, and in reverse, I was in a London, I was aware, I was looking forward to seeing a London that no longer existed, that I'd seen through novels and books and films, um, that I had my generalized ideas about London, just as my friends might have had their generalized ideas about Americans. Um, the other thing that was interesting was that I, so that to be, to, and I'm talking about me in 1985, I don't know who else this applies to, but I felt that there was a somewhat of a, I was one of, it was the only American there. There was a second American who was also a college kid. He was the loud American and I was the quiet American. He was way more American than I was, which was great. <laughs> because I could be the intellectual, educated, quiet, classy American, and he could be you know, the crass, vulgar one. But um, I, I found that uh, there was... I, uh, so uh, at no point did this... Uh, for many years, I had a great confidence in my own abilities and my intelligence, so that wasn't affected. But what was affected was that I wanted to impress everyone. 
And that's not something I was used to because, as I say, I, was, I, I, I grew up in Manhattan. I went to NYU. I was never far from my own environment. When I did leave my environment in the United States, I was going to places that were where I was fancier than the people I was visiting and talking to most of the time. Um, there's some exceptions, of course. Um, but I wanted, to, I wanted to impress the people that I was meeting automatically, which isn't something that I, apart from the normal human thing of wanting to make a good impression on anybody that you meet, I, I had a slight nervousness based on what I perceived to be the uh, reactions people were having to me as, as an American. And this story would be pertinent whatever countries we're talking about. Um, so the other thing that I noticed, which was interesting, was that I, my identity is that I, I noticed that there was a sort of a nervousness towards the United States as I perceived it then. I have no idea what it's like now. There was, a, there was sort of a, a I, would, I would describe this as a, a somewhat superior nervousness. There was a feeling of cultural, like, and I don't, you know, Leicester Square was filled with American action movies, you know, and, and, and the, uh, all of the American TV shows were on English television, which I was surprised to see. Um, I had friends who were talking about Dynasty, and, uh, which is a TV show that was very popular in the 80s, I don't know, <laughs> you know, which I didn't watch. So I was, in a way, I was being reacted to partly on account of an enormous product that was being shipped over here that I had nothing to do with. Um, at the same time, I noticed that with the slightest effort, this, this uh, feeling, a slight feeling of... of uh, I don't even want to say superiority, but the slight cultural edge, let's say, comparable to perhaps the edge that I felt uh, as a New Yorker in other parts of the United States, would collapse very quickly because the country was under siege from American culture in a way that the New York was not under siege from British culture. New York is under siege from millions of cultures or thousands of cultures, but there's no huge British, British presence in the United States, in, 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 in New York. So I realized that it was a bit of the... There was a simultaneous feeling of you're over here and we're over here, and then also a feeling of like we're over here and you're all like this at us, which was very easy to tap into. Um, so it was, it was, but it, but the main point I'm trying to make is that there was a a tremendous and 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 not too difficult to dispel, but a tremendous initial uh, generalized identity that I had that really had nothing to do with me. Now, people experience this all over the world in many more severe situations, we all know, I'm sure. About them, this was a very mild experience, but it was interesting to me because there was, occasionally took a little work to feel like I was seeing, I was, to, to, to find a direct interaction. Um, and I thought this was quite interesting. So, um, you know, the flip side of this I already talked about, or my side of it a bit, was that I had a great love for what I thought of as England, and it was very, it's very exciting to be somewhere you've read about your whole life and seen in movies, even if the movies were made in Hollywood, um, in a studio in California by, with British actors and European exiled from World War II directors and uh, produced by Jewish-American movie producers. <laughs> I mean, I often think of uh, Wuthering Heights, which I saw, the first Wuthering Heights with uh, Laurence Olivier and Merle Oberon, which was, shot, which was made in 1939. 
And I, I truly love that film, but I was thinking today about it, and I was thinking how much, how much of that story, because I never read the book. So I love this story that was written in 19th century England and produced by, uh, I think it's by Samuel Goldwyn, possibly, I can't remember now, directed by William Wyler, who was a, from Eastern Europe, uh, and starring Laurence Olivier, who was obviously Laurence Olivier, with Merle Oberon, who was born in India, shot on the back lots of Hollywood, and then watched by me, in, shot in 1939, and then watched by me in 1972. Now, how much of the original novel did I actually absorb? And I don't know, but I think I would say something. <laughs> because what I'm, what, what, the reason I decided to talk about this today was because I was trying to think... Uh, you'll allow me to... I'm circling around this, and now I'm going to keep circling, if that's all right. I, I have a 14-year-old daughter, and uh, watching a small child's ideas about uh, the world develop uh, from the very beginning is very interesting. Um, I remember noticing that when she was about two, she first started to play, make things up, make up stories and play with dolls or space animals or creatures and make up little stories. Around the same time, her memory traditionally started to retain information. And I, always, and I thought at the time that your memory and your imagination are, are, must essentially be the same function. And this is just one child, so it's an anecdotal theory, but it's my, but it's my theory. And there's, because when you remember something, obviously some cell in your mind is firing off the information and you're, you're having the memory. And it's really not all that different from imagining something. And as you all know from dreaming, your dreams are comprised of combinations that are imaginary with material that's memory. And I think it's all kind of the same thing. Um, so, uh, and I'll one, one more example of, of how strong your memory can be, uh, or your imagination can be in the face of reality um, that's much more prosaic. Um, when when she was learning how to swim, my parents have a, a place in, uh, in Maine on a lake, and so my daughter grew up swimming, uh, learning to swim. And there was, a, there was a log about 50 feet up in the water, an old log which was on a chain which was attached to the bottom of the lake. And we used to tie the boat up there when the water level would get too low. And she was frightened of the log when she was young. And it wasn't a question of drowning, because she had those things, floaty things on her arms or I would be with her. But she didn't want to swim out to the log and hold onto the log because it scared her. And I said, well, the log is not scary. There's nothing scary about the log. It's just a log floating in the water. And, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, and she says, well, it's, 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 a, it's black. It's not brown. I said, well, it's black because it's been in the water. It gets black. And she said, yeah, but it's got things on it. I said, well, those are just the things that are on. You're not scared of regular trees, are you? And she said, no, but I'm scared of that log. And I'm not going to go near it. <laughs> and I thought that with no experience at the age of five, there's nothing in her mind to fight the imaginary f scary properties that that log has. She hasn't, if she'd swum out to it, if I made her, I didn't make her do it, she, the log was gone the next year, and I'm sure she wouldn't be scared of it now because she's 14. But there's nothing strong enough in her experience to combat the strength of her imagination about why that log is frightening, unless somebody really forced her to go out to the log, and I wasn't about to do that. Um, so, I, in a way, I kind of think that your imagination is everything. And that brings me now to screenwriting and to films and to art in general. 
Um, I'm not the first person to make these observations, um, but uh, James Joyce said famously that, uh, and he, he's either paraphrasing, translating, or interpreting St. Thomas Aquinas, I don't remember which, um, and feel, uh, fairly, when he's fairly young, saying that the dramatic art form is, is the most superior, and I'm leaving that part aside, because what it does is it creates an object, it creates a, a story or a drama that is equidistant between your, the creator's imagination and the imagination of the audience. Because the experience that you have when you're, when you're working with actors uh, or other collaborators on, on any kind of a project, a film or a play, uh, one, of the, one of the most enjoyable things about it is the, is the combining of imaginations that goes on when you're talking about when you're working on a part or when you're working on part of the film. Um, I've had this sensation with most of the actors that I've worked with after the work was done of having, we both, for instance, Anna Paquin in, in my film Margaret, which was a tremendously difficult and demanding role, and a big uh, movie to shoot, even though it was on a fairly <laughs> modest budget. And by the end of the 50 days of shooting, and uh, I felt like we had both been pretending to be the same teenage girl for 50 days, and we, we had been in the same emotional space in a way, in an extremely intimate way. And we're not, we, have, we are friendly, but we haven't stayed friends, but I have a connection to her because we both pretended to be this person as hard as we could and with all the freedom of our imaginations that were, was available to us. Uh, and I've had that experience with many friends, with Casey Affleck, who's in Manchester. Just, we just gone through the same thing. Who is he? What is he doing? Where is he coming from? What is, why is he behaving this way? How is he reacting? And that meeting of souls, in a way, and I don't, and I use that word loosely, is, is, is profound. Um, and I think that the same thing happens when audiences see and engage in your work, or when I see and engage in someone else's work. And I think that's why these things are so important to us, because my ideas about London and their ideas about Americans and my ideas about English people, which, which, we all had, which we had to weather until we got to know each other a little better, are ephemera and not meaningful terribly. But the fantasy of watching a film, watching Wuthering Heights, of all things, Wuthering Heights, let's call it a corny Hollywood movie, really good one, but a corny Hollywood movie, that puts me, at least I think it puts me, in connection with, some, with those characters that were invented in the 19th century, and I, and I, or at least with the characters that were invented in 1939, um, with the imaginations of the people who made that film. And that's an immensely exciting thing, and it's a genuine contact, unlike a lot of the contacts that you have in life where you're talking to someone and they're talking to someone, and you're essentially talking to your idea of them and they're talking to their idea of you, and there's no connection whatsoever. I do believe that there's a, an intimate connection between people that they're not always so aware of, it's hard to characterize. I think people are very sensitive to one another, uh, um, no matter what's going on. But what they're thinking and what they're feeling is, is, it can be, as you know, from your own relationships, and this is not a criticism of your relationships, because I don't know you. <laughs> but as you know, you can have one idea of a conversation that you've come from, and the other person has a completely different idea. It's well known that juries and witnesses and criminal trials and civil trials have 20 people see the same thing and have a different experience 
But one of the places where this is bridged, where there's actual contact between minds and souls, is in art, I think. And that's, you know, sometimes I think what is so important about recreating life in a movie or in a play or in a photograph or in a painting or, or some more abstract expression of it in dancing or music. Because I'm often asked, like, well, I often think about, you know, I've tried to, I try to make everything as true to life as possible. That's what I'm interested in. There's millions of ways to make films and plays that are interesting, that are not strictly naturalistic, that are truthful. If you listen to Werner Herzog talking about naturalism, he, he makes him want to throw up. He doesn't like it. But his films are very truthful, and they have a resonance, and you feel connected to the people in them. And I think that this is... And I think it's because... Just watching a little clip of those those the, the, those other films, and not 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 so much the Pixar stuff, but um, which is although humor is another way to access other human beings in a way you can't otherwise. But if I, I'm I'll be I'm actually going to I'm going to Munich for a day, and I'm going to Vienna next week to to help uh, promote the film, and I'm really excited to go. But I'm thinking of them those places in terms of in nothing like as terms as, as human as those little clips we just saw. And seeing that man come out of the closet, I haven't seen the film yet, I'm very much looking forward to it, but seeing that funny scene and his, that thing he did, suddenly he's a human being and he's not a German, whatever German means to me. And he, he is, but he's, he's a person. And I think that that's something that film can do instantaneously, and uh, not just film, but novel, but just the whole gamut of the arts. And... Uh, that's one of the things I think that gives it its tremendous value. And when you're watching something that doesn't have that, that is an attempt to, that, then I, I think, I was trying to think when I was thinking about this, what, well, what is it that I don't like? What, why is, when something feels false to me, why does it feel false? And I think, it's, I think when films feel false or TV feels false or anything fictional feels false, I think it's because and I'm, I'm guessing, I think it's because the creators are trying to, they're not, they're not reflecting their own experience, they're reflecting an experience that I think they're trying to guess, I think they're trying to guess what the audience is like. I think they're trying to, I think they see someone talk in a certain way or behave in a certain way. I think they're seeing it not from the point of view, not, not, as, not as real, even if it's made up, and it could be a science fiction movie or it could be a complete fantasy movie, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm not saying it, ha I, this has nothing to do with the, naturalistic level of the fantasy. It has to do with the, the sincerity of the intent, I think. And whether the sincerity, if the sincerity of the intent is to say, okay, we all know this kind of guy, and he's like this. To me, half your mind's on, on, a, on a generalization, and very little of it is on a guy. And if you forget about what you think the audience is looking for, and you look at the guy, then you say, well, he do doesn't really talk like this. This is just I've just heard people, other people talk about this on TV. And there's a, there's a difference. I, I, I'd have to develop this thought a bit more to really put it out there, but I, I know I'm right. <laughs> um, so I guess finally I'll say that it's nice to think that this stuff is important because when you're in show business, and unfortunately, especially when things are going well, which you want them to go well, you st sometimes feel a bit shallow because... There's a lot of shallowness around show business, let's face it. Um, why should anyone, why should I spend my life asking people to listen to my fantasies and pay attention to my emotional life? 
And the answer is because everybody's emotional life is important and everybody's fantasies are important. And I think that it doesn't take much of a look around the world to see that the more actual connection there is and, and, and the less generalized identification of others there is, the, the better. So on that note, I will go like that. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for sharing that, that was, with us. That was really scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got through that with great aplomb. You didn't seem scared. Didn't seem I don't nice. like to wear my heart on my sleeve. <laughs> <laughs> um, let, well, there are so many things that we could talk about, and I will bring in the audience in a moment. But I want to talk, uh, first of all, about that sort of um, sorry, popular adjective around the moment, that, that liminal space, as it were, that idea of where the imagination of the writer and the imagination of the audience meets and how you get it to do that. Because it's not just about, I mean, naturalism and truth are obviously really important things, but it's, it, there's yeah, but a lot it, of craft around that as well. There is, and also naturalism, I mean, it does nothing, it, it doesn't, as I say, it doesn't require naturalism. I'm, I'm a big fan, I, most of my favorite movies are not particularly naturalistic. It's just something, I'm inter something that I got interested in trying to work with and to do. Um, uh, I wanted to talk, uh, one thing that I forgot to talk about because I was how you can, you can, one interesting thing that happens is you can filter out, if you say if you happen to like old films like I, as I do, if, for instance, just take Casablanca for example, or all those World War II movies in which the French resistance was this just pantheon of heroes, and 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 it just it was it was a partly a propaganda thing and not part of Hollywood. But you have to, you you don't you don't watch Casablanca and say, well, what about all those rotten murdering collaborators? You, you say you have to take that movie, you have to take the stated values of the movie as, which are fantasy values, and but if you believe in them, then you can have a really good cry, and you can really enjoy that movie, and it can be quite moving. Uh, but you have to sometimes substitute things that are that you know are a lie for for something that you, that you actually ha have some meaning to you. But that's what happens. It's interesting. It's I don't mean to be too psychological about it, but or to discuss this from such a psychological angle. But that's what you do in dreams. When you have a dream, you can have a dream where something grotesque and weird happens, and and you and you have no reaction to it whatsoever, or something terribly upsetting happens and you wake up and say, well, I don't know why I'm so upset about that in the dream. The affect is detached from the content completely and that, that, that can happen a lot too when you watch films, but I don't think that I'm answering your question. Well, let's go to another way, <laughs> which is that when you begin um, perhaps with a situation or an individual um, and you are starting with, say, Lisa in Margaret or um, which perhaps it might be easier to talk about as a, maybe not everybody here has seen Matters about the Sea, but um, is there something about that character that you know at the very beginning is going to produce that very space where the imagination, the, the imaginations of the two are going to meet? Well, not as such, but I, I only work on... See, this is all... This is all talk. This is all, all. Everything I'm talking about is just 
observations, which are not particularly, I wouldn't say they're particularly helpful, and uh, they're fun to talk about um, and, and their ideas, but I think, but on the ground, as it were, I'm trying to find anything that seems alive to me and I'll grab onto that and hold onto it and follow it along what feels like its natural course. So I had an idea, whatever that means, about a teenager, I mean, came from an anecdote that I was told when I was 17, but it always stuck with me. And I had an idea for a, to do a story about this girl who witnesses and partly causes this bus accident and tries to do something about it and fails. And I, for me, it's just a question of what's going to... I'm interested in a lot of things, but the things that I'm interested enough from that I'm interested in from a writing point of view, I, I don't know why and I don't know where it comes from, but for me it's a question of trying to make it as real to myself as possible as an actor, as an actor would if they had to act the role. Um, and that means just following it along, following her as she goes and seeing, well, would she do this and would she do that and what would she do next? And hopefully most of the time I don't, I don't have to even ask those questions. It just occurs to me and I write it down. But the actual structure of Margaret is... is so complex and so everything plays out so beautifully, as indeed is, is also true Manchester by the Sea. I mean, everything plays out so beautifully. There are so Thank many you. trails laid all the way through, which suggests, um, and, you know, with the dialogue, there'll be this sort of, kind of contrapuntal moments where one person is saying something and then somebody else is chiming in with something else. And if you look at it on the page, you can see, ah, oh, yeah, okay, that was how that worked. I mean, all of these things. This is all, do you have a grand architecture to start with, or does it evolve as you go along? Um, I usually have to have uh, at least a loose architecture to start with, or I can't get very far. I could have an idea for a character or a situation, and if I don't have an overarching idea, I, I get nowhere. And my, uh, I, I, had, I wrote a rough outline for that script uh, in my notebook. I don't usually write outlines, but I had all the ideas at once, so I wrote them all down. Um, not all of them, but I had the main ideas at once, and I wrote them all down. And then the one idea that I had, which I cared about and seemed exciting to me, then really set the tone for the whole, well, really set, set it really was the, the key cornerstone of the whole structure of the script, which was the, I had the thought that it would be fun and interesting to write a script where you didn't drop the rest of the character's life when the main plot kicked in. Because I, you see a movie about a guy who works in a bank and then he witnesses a robbery and then he gets involved with the police and then he gets involved in the caper and, and then you see him leaving the bank. You know, you might have a scene at the beginning where he's at work, like morning, morning, and then, then the rest of the film, you never see him at the bank again. And I always wonder, like, well, he had to go to work. Like, before he went and ran off at night with the thieves or the police or the whatever, whatever the story is, what did he do all day long? So I thought it would be fun to see, insist that she kept the rest of her life going. And then I wanted to, that included her relationship with her parents and her friends and her school, as well as the relationships that, and the events that followed from the accident. And that then led very naturally to wanting to include everybody else. So... I knew that she and her mother, I knew that would, the mother would be a strong subplot all the way through. Um, and then the characters that her mother meets, I tried to give them, anyway, eventually I tried to give everybody who we see some sort of a life or at least an indication or a, or a color of, of another point of view coming in from a completely other direction. And then that led to wanting to show the city 
as much as we do and wanted to see and the idea of all those windows and what's going on in every single one of those windows and then hearing the off-camera dialogue and really and eventually it turned out that that's what the film was about was about her not being able to eke justice out of the world because there's so many other people in it doing their own thing and living their own lives and having their own interests and and it's just not possible to affect the world as much as a teenager thinks she's going to be able to and that the question of observation, um, which I mean, you referred to just now when you were talking, and, and the importance of observations. I mean, that there are writers who can observe, but there is something particularly, I think, often about the way that you may observe perhaps an awkwardness in a situation, which, in a more conventional drama, there wouldn't be that awkwardness. You know, things, things just. There are certain dramatic conventions that I don't know if there's a, a somebody's breaking news about a tragedy or if there's a moment of elation or something. You will quite often find something that people stumble over in that, which makes it particularly acute and affecting. Uh, but it's also quite bold dramatically. Uh, yeah, I really like those moments because they happen to me all the time. Yeah. The door is always stuck and the shower doesn't work and I trip and, you know, or, or you say, not just to me, but to everyone. And I think they're really, I think they're very, I mean, I, if you lose your car keys, you can be sure that's, and you're in a hurry, that's going to affect you a lot more than it's than what you read in the newspaper about the victims of the earthquake you read about or or the or if something wonderful happens also but if you're really in a frenzy to get your car to get going and you cannot find your car keys and you've lost them for the third time and you're in a rage at yourself i feel that this is very dramatic only because it upsets you if it didn't bother you that much it wouldn't be that interesting but uh, uh, and i think that these things are real gold mine i mean all these daily accidents and imperfections in the day and the interruptions and stumbles, as you say, stumblings, uh, uh, I, I just find them, to, first of all, I think they're funny. Second of all, I think they're, they're, they seem to be what life is made of. And I, one, there's just a generalized dictate when you're writing a screenplay or a play just to stick to the point and get on with it. And that's not the end of the world. There are, you know, there are films and plays that have a wonderful, amazing economy about them that's really beautiful, and they manage to do so much with in such a short time, but I, I, I often I, I often think that there's no point there's no point in doing anything just for the sake of it. They they used to you know they when I was in screenwriter school they'd say it's a visual medium don't have too much dialogue. All the movies I liked were from the 1930s and 40s when they, all they do is talk, um, and so I was like, well, what about all the movies I like? Those are those have a lot of dialogue in them, and then you see something like Barry Lyndon that has 12 lines of dialogue in it. So there's no the, the rules are all nonsense. It's whether the rules help you get to something that's interesting, um, and I like car keys being lost. And <laughs> <laughs> but is this, I mean, given that, um, you know, you haven't only worked for, for screen, given that you, you've written for the stage as well, and in terms of looking at contemporary cinema, are you conscious? Because certainly, as a consumer of it, I'm conscious of the predictability of so much filmmaking, of hitting certain beats, of the fact somebody starts a sentence and you know how it's going to end. Yeah. I am. I am too, and I. 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 I think there's always. I think that's just a function. I. I think. I do think there's a function of, of people trying to make it good in an, in an external way, or make it accessible, or. I think it's a function of rules and deciding what uh, and guidelines and 
trying to please the audiences, which is completely a fantasy, by the way. One of my other pet peeves is this. I, they can't, this has been going on for 30 years now, but the personal growth in America, the personal growth required for every major American film from a studio just makes you want to just kill yourself. <laughs> and and it's okay, it might have been tolerable when it was a soap opera drama, but now it's infected all these genres where it doesn't belong, science fiction movies, fantasy movies. Uh, Captain America has to have a moment of personal growth <laughs> or it's no good. And no, but I don't know where they get the idea that anybody wants to see this, but they cannot shake it. It's incredible. I mean, I want to see Captain America throw his shield and hit people and, <laughs> and, and maybe get in trouble and then get, get out of it somehow. I do not need to see... I'm not interested in his emotional progression. <laughs> and I don't think anybody is. But they keep putting it, pulling it on and on and on. One of my favorite examples of this is... Um, did any of you see the, 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 those Narnia movies they made, The mm-hmm. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Mm-hmm. And, the, and have you, do you know the books, all of you? Oh, God, yes. Oh, of course you do. <laughs> well, I love those books, and I detest those movies. And I did like The Voyage of the Dawn Treader was okay, but it was the other two were... But there's, there's a moment in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the film, and I don't like to be publicly critical of other people's work because I'm not a critic, but this is too much to bear. <laughs> <laughs> The, the Susan and Peter are on an ice floe in a frozen river that's breaking up and the chunks of ice are going downstream and, and going over the edge of a cliff and a waterfall. And the, both banks of the river, they're surrounded by wolves, enormous CGI, double-sized wolves snarling at them, going to tear them to pieces. And Peter's got a sword that he was given by, by Santa Claus, I guess, by Father Christmas. And... It looks like there, it really looks like it's curtains. And he's standing there, and Susan says to him, Just because someone gives you a sword doesn't make you a hero, Peter. <laughs> and I thought, You can't be serious. <laughs> this is not the time for that kind of discussion. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and in fact, it never is. <laughs> and what, why that's there, I don't know, because I know nobody wants to see it, nobody wants to write it. And I know it's there because we really want to see Peter and Susan's growth in this process. We don't want to just have a, you know, <laughs> just a bunch of swords and wolves who wants to see that. Well, I do. And, and, and also in the books, they have perfectly good relationships and interesting. Mm. And I, when I saw Prince Caspian, I knew. I knew before I went in there in the book. I don't know how well you remember this. I remember it very well. But Prince Caspian and Peter get along just fine right away. Peter's the high king from the olden days as far as Caspian's concerned. And he's there the first scene they have in the book, Peter says, We're here to, I'm not here to replace you, I'm here to help you. And they get along just fine from that point on. And I knew, I knew when I saw the movie, there'd be a real struggle between Caspian and Peter and really going at it and then getting together, you know, and, and I knew, and sure enough, there they are, cursing, yelling at each other and sneering at each other and who's going to be the king and et cetera, et cetera. It's all, and, and you can just see it coming a mile away. I don't know who they're doing it for. It's appalling. <laughs> Do I get the sense you might not be a great fan of screenwriting courses? Or I'm not. <laughs> I, 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 any intelligent individual can communicate something valuable to any other intelligent individual, one would hope. But I don't believe in screenwriting. No, I, I, I think they can be very harmful. As a matter of fact, I had a, a young woman came up to me after a screening of Manchester recently and said she was said did i have any advice about screenwriting i said 
well, you know, sure, but and she said, because I, I'm in this, do you believe in the three-act structure? And I said, no, I don't even know what it is. Um, and she said, because I, I'm, I'm at NYU where I went, and I had some good teachers and some not-so-good teachers, and she said, because they're really just drilling us with a three-act structure, and I just love, uh, not to be immodest, but she said that she, she loved, I just love Margaret because it's such an unusual structure, and I had this movie that I was writing, and I just had these ideas for how I wanted to do it, and they just... It just and I had to rewrite the whole thing, and I said I, I I said I think you should not I think you have to write a test script that you show to your peers in the, the class and and not you don't care about it and keep what you care about to yourself a bit more. I think rules are great if you're in trouble and if they're you're not in any trouble with what you're writing they're absolutely useless and and possibly worse than useless. Uh, it may happen that every script has a has the characters established by page ten and it may not. I don't think there's any reason to be thinking about that when you're trying to write a script. And it may be that every successful script has a reversal and half two-thirds of the way through and one, another one a third of the way through. I don't know. It's not really... I don't see what you're going to... I don't I, I don't think that kind of... I think that kind of thing... I think every time I read a script and it goes off, it's because at that point the script is trying to be like a script. And it's not... And, and it, it's at that exact moment when it loses its individuality and, and its interest. But you have to be in a position, I mean, you, you can say that from the position of success and strength. I mean, it's quite difficult, isn't it, for people starting out? Don't it's you terrible. No, and I can't say it from a position of success and strength because it's, it's uh, I, the three films that I've directed, I have enjoyed uh, fairly secure uh, protection against the script being muddled with. But that's for various reasons. The main reason is that I wouldn't have gone into the situations initially at all if I wasn't going to get that, because I didn't care enough about having a movie made or directing a movie if the script was going to be destroyed. However, that is a specialized situation. Now, you can create these specialized situations, but if I, I make a living or I made a living and I probably will have to go back to making a living as a Hollywood screenwriter and I rewrite other people's material and I do it, try to do my, the best job that I can and I know the minute I'm gone someone else will rewrite it and, uh, and that will be it. Gangs of New York is the only exception because I was the last writer there and also it had a, a great genius in charge of the material and shaping it and I wasn't there to write my own vision, I was there to help him out um, as was everyone. Um, but that's unusual. But it's is and it's a very difficult thing to do. It's very hard to know how to how to handle your script in the hands of people who have power over it. Is nothing. It, 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 there's no there's no good way to do it. Uh, the only good way to do it is not to get yourself into that situation in the first place, either by by producing the film or directing the film with producers who you are fairly sure will protect you. But at least in in my in the states, the the screenwriter is a hired hand and is disposable and will be disposed of. And so, as writer director, when, when you actually come to production, um, is the script sacrosanct, or is there? Uh, as far as I'm, I mean, as far as everybody else is concerned, yes. As far as I'm concerned, it's fair, pretty much so. I don't like to. I'm not. I don't think very fast on my feet, so I like to have the script pretty well sorted out before I get started working on it with other people. Uh, I'll change a line here or there. I'll write an extra scene here or there. Um, but I, I've just, the three situations that I've been in were all, the script was protected from the beginning. 
and stayed that way. But as I say, I had to make those arrangements before, beforehand. I'm going to throw it out in, in just a moment, but, but just before we do, I, I want to ask you about music because, um, I mean, you talked about naturalism, uh, but you also employ music I mean, in a very heightened way and a brilliant way all the way through. But in a sense, that would almost seem to be perhaps the antithesis of naturalism. Well, when I talk about when I'm talking about naturalism, I'm talking about uh, it's still it's still made up. I mean, it's still a fantasy of some sure. kind. It's it's not. It, I, I'm just interested in it as a way of telling a story. I, I, I'm, I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, the very first Star Wars. I don't like the subsequent ones so much. I, I like Star Trek. I like Post Encounters. I really like space movies. I like science fiction. I like comedies that are not naturalistic. I don't, I don't require naturalism. As, I, don't, I don't feel that naturalism is like a higher form of art than anything else. I think you can be... I, I think... I think, I think Truthfulness is what I'm talking about, and the way I get to truthfulness is through naturalism or ultra-naturalism or a focus on little details that I think are, are interesting and truthful that, that, and dramatic that, I, that, that other people possibly skip over. But that, that's not by any means my feeling about the only way to do it. Um, however, and, in, and, theref and therefore I don't think it's... So I'm very comfortable using music to do whatever music does in a film, um, I, as it happens, the way that I've used music, at least it, 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 in all three films, I guess, was, to, uh, first of all, I just started out with music I liked. I didn't know what to put there at all. I didn't know whether, I, so I just started with music I liked against the, against the picture, and then it would either work or it wouldn't. And uh, more guided by instinct than by any theory or feeling or, or ideas. But uh, I'm sorry, I, I, I think, I think music is good when it shifts the perspective of the story a little bit. And the music in, in uh, Margaret is very, in Margaret, the extended edition, which is the only edition that I now will endorse, the theatrical release was, was, uh, was released, uh, was, a, was, a, was, a, was an early, shorter, earlier version that was locked and turned over to the studio and that was subsequently released. And I supported it because people liked it and because I was being sued. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't like to... I don't like to dismiss it because people do like, because of the people who do like it. But for me, the extended edition, which which you can get, is 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 much closer to the movie I wanted to make. And in that, there's a lot of opera music, and a lot of music that seems to come from somewhere else. And I think the whole, and I don't, I, I couldn't have said this while I was doing it, but the feeling that I get when I watch that those scenes with the music is that it lifts the situation a bit, or it it it, it looks at her. And the other people in the story from a high, wider perspective. It's a, sort of an anthropological look at, at these people struggling in their environment, and it's not so much from her point of view the the music. And I think that's true of the Manchester music as well. It's just music that just does something. Something makes 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 gives you a different feeling in the scene. Um, and, I, and for me, it's usually a feeling that makes you want to step back a little bit. But music is so important. I mean, my God, it's so. Wouldn't want Casablanca without that incredibly dense film score. And but you're thinking about that music when you're writing. The no, not no. usually. Sometimes I'll no. sometimes think of a a, a a tune or a song or a piece of music that I like beforehand. But usually it's afterwards. It depends. Mm. Because I, I mean, without going into any detail on my stuff for all sorts of reasons. I mean, there is one bit where there's a very powerful 
bit of music used at a very powerful moment. And I, I, I find it difficult to believe that you didn't have that in mind. I didn't, so I, in fact, yeah. but that was a very, that music was very helpful in editing the, in that section because mm -hmm. we were having a lot of trouble with that. And then we tried that music and it suddenly gave us a rhythm to the section and a feeling for it that, that seemed to really, uh, it's hard to talk about because music mm -hmm. is so nonverbal, but uh, it, it gave a, a, a sense of a feeling, an emotional feeling to that section that seemed very, very right for it. Um, but no, that came fairly late. Okay, well, I'm conscious that we don't have um, masses of time, so if you have questions, please ask them now. Hi, um, I've really enjoyed the talk so far, and I wanted to say that Margaret, for me, is maybe the most powerful film I've seen this century. Thank you. And I know I, I really could not forgive myself if I didn't ask you how you coped with the fact that having made it, and you must have been aware of the strength of the film you'd made, um, it didn't really get a fair roll of the dice. Stuff happened. And I know I imagined, you know, if, if that was me, I don't know how I'd get back off the floor. And so I just wondered if you could talk about that for a moment. Uh, well, I felt bad. <laughs> uh, I felt very bad about that, and it was a long, painful, stupid process that surrounded the film, which I really loved, and making the film and editing the film, even editing the film was not was not stupid. It was did take a while because of all the uh, procedural arguments that blossomed into this really crazy extended situation. But the truth is, the film, all, although I still feel sort of sick at heart at the degree to which the uh, studio distributor abandoned the film and in, and in some ways deliberately buried it. Uh, the fact that it was rescued from total oblivion by people who liked it, and particularly, I must say, English people mm -hmm. who liked it, because we had a wonderful response here after it had been very much neglected, and uh, it helped the studio pay some attention to it, and it helped. It fed. Uh, it fed the 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 small campaign of people who wanted to see it again and, 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 and helped keep it alive. Um, and that was really nice. So uh, I, I don't know if that answers your question. I felt terrible, but not completely terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the fact that we're sitting here and you've seen the film and you've seen the film and some of you have seen the film is, is wonderful. I mean, why should you have? There's, thousands, there's tens of thousands of other films that You've probably seen too, but <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, I feel like the movie has, has is, is clinging to life and maybe has a bit more life even than it had ten years ago. And um, well, not ten years ago, but it was released two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve, and it still seems to be there. So that's that's a nice feeling. But you'd actually started shooting ten years ago. We you? shot it in two thousand five, two thousand six, yeah. and then it was lot, and then we edited it for eight months, and then there was when we fought for four years and edited in between fights. Um, hello. Hi. Um, hi. So um, you were talking about difficulty editing one particular sequence in Manchester. All of creativity is very difficult because, like you say, it starts in your imagination and then you have to try and make it real. Do you, do you know when you're working on something, when it's difficult, like how far you can push it and, like, to get it to how it is in your imagination versus are there times when you compromise and you're like, this is as good as I can get it in the 
tangible world of filmmaking. Say the last so, part of the sentence again. Do you know when to keep pushing and when to give up when you're trying to realize your vision? Uh, again, pushing against whom? When you, so, Myself or, or others? Yeah, I guess pushing against others because you're relying on others with filmmaking. Oh, I haven't had that. I mean, with, again, with the three films that I have made, I haven't had much trouble with that. I, I, I haven't had... I haven't been in... I'm not, I just don't function very well when I have to argue and, and work at the same time. So, um, and I, so I haven't... It's always been, you know, on the first two films, there were, there were logistical issues with, the, with making the movie and you have to try to adjust the script of the budget and you have to make sure you can afford to shoot the material that you have. But I haven't had any creative interference on, on either the uh, on either You Can Count On Me or Manchester. And then the problems I had with the Margaret were in the editing well after the film was shot. And it was, uh, it was, at first it was just procedural. They wanted me to edit in a certain way and show them the film in a certain amount of time and I didn't want to. And, it escalated from that, and they never really cared about the content, so I haven't really had to grapple with that too much. My feeling about that, however, is that if you care about the content, you shouldn't have to convince anybody about of anything, um, and you have to. You should, you, you're in a political situation where, by which I mean, you have to arrange to have the authority over the content yourself, or have someone more powerful than you who has authority over the content, because I cannot. I, I'm no, I, my style of arguing is to lose my temper and then give up, <laughs> uh, which is not very effective because you were both disliked and you lost. <laughs> um, so you have to be a little clever and you have to be careful, you have to, you have to, if you're, you have to be, you have to know that you're going to be protected by the people who do have the, the, the power or you have to figure out how to get it yourself if you want to protect your work. But I always feel like I'm arguing with myself about the content. Sorry, I guess in the course of you answering that, I mean like your other interpretation. Like for you, it's in your imagination and you're fighting against yourself to make it how you imagine it. Are you always able to get things exactly as you imagine it? And if not, do you know when to give up? Um, it's hard. It's, it depends. Uh, well, I, I tend to give up if I'm just if it's just something I'm working on and it's not going well, I, after a while, I, 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 it's it's usually pretty clear when it's not going to go my way, and then I, and then I do give up. But that's usually pretty early. I, as I say, if I know that, for instance, if I know what the ending of the story is going to be, I know I'm I know it's going to work. I know I'm going to be all right, and it's but I often don't know, um, and then so I have lots of ideas that never go anywhere, and then it, it is a struggle to to get more material out of them. But if I know what the ending is essentially and what the main Kind of structure, loose structure of the material is then I then I feel confident that I'm going to be able to uh, write something that I like, and so it's more of a wrestling with ennui, the ennui and the feeling of lassitude and boredom and 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 disinterest that comes when when I'm not doing a good job. Uh, it's not a feeling. It's just like you just you hit this wall and you get. You just like don't want to write, you don't want to work, you don't want to think, you don't want to do anything, you just want to watch television or read or do something else. And that's the form that the difficulty takes. When I'm really involved in something and I'm interested in it, then I, I once once it's underway, I've, I've not yet 
Well, I have one play that I wrote that I don't think I finished successfully completely well. And I have thousands of pages, you understand, in boxes that are all terrible. I'm talking about the few projects that, of those that, that I liked enough to keep working on them and, and show people. Is that answered? Yes, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, I remember being uh, 14 and reading This Is Our Youth and it just, the characters, uh, I, I loved it. I, I related to it so much. And at the time, I wished uh, maybe they'll make a film and I can see these characters on the big screen. Uh, obviously, I don't think it, I think it's great as a play. Now, when you're writing, do you ever feel like you can't quite decide if it should be a film or a play or does it come very early on with the idea uh, that it should be one medium or the other? Uh, it comes up very early on, almost immediately, and um, usually because if it's a film, then it feels like there's there's a part to be played by the outdoors, whether it's or the physical environment of where the characters live. Uh, although that's not that's not entirely true. I wrote a play, I wrote a play about the Middle Ages, which has a lot of environmental. Uh, many different locations, and one of the enjoyable things about the production was was using all these um, medieval illuminations as as uh, blown up backdrops. Um, and so, once again, I'm contradicting myself. But for the most part, I I know right away. And and I have I have to say, I'd like to make all of my plays into films. I just haven't haven't. It's a bit hard to make myself do that much work on something I've already done that much work on, and I don't want to give them to anyone else. Uh, yet, so we shall see. Well, I was wondering, you talked about uh, the ennui and the boredom that inevitably hits... <laughs> that I generate in others? No, no. <laughs> I mean, that inevitably hits everyone who works or does anything creative. And I was wondering if you have a ritual or anything that gets you going in spite of that. No, I don't. I, I, I get annoyed with myself and, and I do other things. I don't have a ritual and I probably need one. Um, no, I have no ritual. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry. You're not sort of a person who has to write before 10 a.m. or no, no, certainly no. not. Um, you were talking about Margaret uh, and uh, the theme, or, or at least it being about um, discovering that it was difficult to get justice when there are so many other people in the world. So taking that as an example and talking about at what stage in the writing process are you usually aware of what something is really about? That's a very interesting question. That's a very interesting subject. I don't quite know what the answer is yet. I know that, um, for instance, that that's, even though I'm the one who said it, that I would, I would, I would, be nervous to say that that's what the movie's about. I would hope that it would that you couldn't you could only say the areas that the movie is interested in. Um, I I tend to know more about the work after it's finished in those terms than I do when I'm working on it. And if I have ideas that are thematic or clearly thematic, I try very hard to keep them much very much in the background of my mind when I'm working and try to focus on the specifics of what's happening to the characters and and the specifics of the all the specifics specifics of the time and the place and the life that's being led, um, I will write down larger thoughts. But they tend to I, my my feeling is that if you take care of the details, the, 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 any larger ideas will come through 
on their, upon their own. And in fact, with that particular script, I found it was immensely fun to write on write because I found that to be more the more I turned my mind off and just wrote what I ever occurred to me, the more uh, unifying themes and topics and ideas came to the surface without my noticing. Uh, so much so that I looked back and said, my gosh, what a masterful architect of <laughs> story structure I, I am. But I hadn't really thought of it. And I, and I made, there was connections between some of the scenes and some of the materials that I didn't, didn't cross my mind what they were till two years afterwards. Um, so that's a wonderfully exciting and interesting process. But I try to deal with it by sticking to the, the, the people on the ground, as it were. But I think that, that works on the audience too, because that, that having more recently seen Monster by the Sea, for two or three days afterwards, things just kept, like little depth charges put through. I mean, they just kept going, oh. They would suddenly work on me later well, that I realised. So I think that's, um, that clearly is. I mean, even when we live in a universe where, where the themes are often written so large on things, this is a much, it seems to be a much more powerful and enduring way of... Of doing it well, most of the, most of the work that I like the the the, the bigger themes and the and the, the uh, and, and when I like my own work the the structure and the content and the emotional content all all go together very nicely, and uh, I don't know who said this. I think it was F. Scott Fitzgerald. The structure is the story, uh, so and and hopefully that's true because. For, uh, just to give you a, a, a vague, non-specific example, if there's a story, say you're trying to write a story about injustice, but what the psychological content is really that that uh, man is very angry at his mother. But he's not writing a story about a man who's angry at his mother. He's writing a story about a man who's been treated like shit by the whole world. That will have a at some point. That's unless unless he's got that into some kind of form that has some kind of honesty to it, it's going to come out a little, you're going to be like, well, why is this guy so victimized? Look at all these, I mean, something's going to feel a little off about it. It's a bad example because it's not, it's not a real example. <laughs> but I think you can see what I mean. It's, I think you want, your, you want it all to be coming from the same place or to be, and then it can kind of go anywhere. Yes, two down here, sorry. Um, my question is also about the length and pace of scripts because often... People are trying to break into screenwriting. I'm told it's going to be 110 pages, but then you get films, for example, you know, if you take Gangs of New York, which is about three hours long. I mean, how conscious are you of um, the length of a script? And you know, because sometimes there are scenes drawn out in films where you think, well, can I tell this story in like two hours as opposed to three hours? What? It's just something I'm just curious about. And what? How do you feel about that? Yeah, more than I more than I ought to be. I think that that it should the 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 film should be as long as it as it's meant to be, or as it as it it should. It doesn't matter how long or short it is. It should it should work at the length that it that that it, where it exists. In what, it should work at its own length. Um, but it is something you worry about because you're worried you're going to bore people. You're worried you're being indulgent. You're worried you you do tend to you you, you the best the best measuring the best guide is to is to measure my own level of boredom or interest and, and 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 it just depends i mean i try to you know 110 pages is fine for a script that works at 110 pages there there's also just i just have to draw a distinction between screenwriting as a profession and screenwriting as a 
craft or an art or, or something to do for fun or something that you're trying to do because you're trying to do it well or you're trying to express something or you're doing it for yourself. Getting it sold and getting other people to like it and under, back it and understand it is a, is, a, is a whole other category. So I'm just talking for the, for, to make it easier about when you're trying to make, be happy with your own work. And in that case, I say you should do whatever feels right to you and then you have to worry about other people at a certain point. You have to worry about them. But I think it's good to trust your own instincts and feeling about it. And most of the time, you know, we all know the rough length of an average movie and probably aim for that. And if it's way shorter or way longer, then see if it seems to you to hold 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 your, in, your own interest and if it seems right. I mean, Margaret, I really did think for a long time it could work at the contracted length that was two hours and 30 minutes became the fulcrum of the, of the arguments that, that we all had. It turned out that it really just didn't work. It actually moves faster and works better longer because of the nature of the story and because of the nature of the structure. There was a trick that, we, that I discovered or we discovered where if you keep the scenes playing for longer than usual, it, when it's working, it draws the audience in in a way or it draws me in and I feel like I'm really watching a real two people actually talking to each other. Um, the rhythm of everyone is, we all know what the rhythms of a movie scene are. So I consciously, I, you know, the first draft, I didn't pay attention to this at all. The first draft of the movie, I just wrote with my eyes closed and it came out 370 pages and I cut 200 pages out of it. And then, but I'd seen there were 16, 20 pages long that were just as good when they were eight pages long. But, uh, Eight pages is still very long for a movie scene. I'm aware of that. <laughs> uh, it seemed to be trying to tell itself in a way that was unusual, that was more, that was ultra naturalistic, that was trying to not be movie pacing. And part of that, I think, is because teenagers often think of themselves as being in a movie. And the fact is, there are many times in life when you wish you could just skip to the end of the movie, and you can't. You have to sit at the doctor's office, you have to sit with a lawyer, you have to sit with your family, you have to sit with a person who's furious at you, and you can't just jump to the next scene. You have to go through the whole goddamn thing. <laughs> and that, to me, creates tension and drama and interest, and that's how that movie accessed that side of life. The other two films are more conventional and are more of a conventional length. Um, you look at a movie like The Deer Hunter, uh, I don't know how familiar you all are with that film. That's, that, that movie has a solid hour in that town before the three main characters go to Vietnam. And all that happens is they get off work, they go, they get, they go have drinks, they get ready for the wedding, they go to a wedding, you meet them all, and there's little scenes with, with these storylines introduced, but there's no real plot. And it takes an hour in that town, the effect is that when you go, when they go to Vietnam, it's the first and only movie I've ever seen where you see the soldiers as people who live in a town who are now soldiers, which is what all soldiers are. And I never seen that before, and I thought it was immensely exciting and great. And that, and those scenes are great. Nothing's happening. You just watch them. For, I could watch it for two hours before they go to Vietnam, but without that without the movie proving that they exist in real life by staying with them for an hour while they have this very, their very ordinary lives, without approving it with a structure and with a content, that very bold idea, without, you don't have nearly the value of the horrific scenes and the experiences that they have when they're, when they're fighting overseas. 
and it, it, it's, there's something incredible about that that just makes you, you don't, they're not, they're not Robert De Niro playing a soldier, he plays a guy who lives in Pennsylvania who then becomes a soldier. And anyway, I think I can make the point, but. Okay, um, this has to be the last question. Or I want to ask a question okay. about creating truthful works, which are often seen as the best works. And um, to create truthful work, I've been told you need to invest a part of yourself into that. And after you've done a work like that, how, are you, how do you find the motivation to create another work after you've invested maybe a part of your autobiographical self into a film or, or similar? How do, how do you find the motivation, the energy to, to create something of similar value? Well, I, I, think, I, I, I think there's a lot of ways to, I don't, want to I'm not, I don't mean to dodge the question, I will answer it, but I think there are a lot of ways to get access what you, what, what you, the, the truth, your own sense of what's truthful and what's, what's real and your, what's emotionally truthful. It doesn't need to be a literal transcribing of your life. My own life is appears very rarely in my work. Um, in the in the film Margaret, I'm not, you know, I, I, there, I could point to various characters who are similar to characters that I know. I could point to various things about myself that are, you could find in some of the characters. I've only really written the high school that she goes to is exactly modeled on my high school, and some of the scenes in the English class are taken from scenes that I from directly from incidents that happened to me when I, or that I watched happen when I was in, in high school. But I think it's more it's a. So I was talking about before. I hope not too pretentiously because I wasn't trying to be pretentious. But but when you make it when you. When you turn yourself into character X in some way, who's also a combination of your friend, of someone, you, of a movie you saw when you were young that you liked, that's a that's this uh, this full person who never existed before that you've made up, and that's invested with some truthfulness from you, uh, and then added to that is the performance of the actor, that that's that's what makes it whether it's literally it could be literal to your life or autobiographical or just disguised autobiography, um, or your observation about someone you know very well who you observed carefully, uh, or some creature you made up out of your imagination. I think it's just a question of what feels alive on its own, and then hopefully the interest in doing that will sustain you through the next project. And I, So I think there's a lot of ways to be truthful in your work. I don't think it has to be literal at all. In fact, I, I find it difficult to get too interested if, if I'm one of the characters. I don't, I don't see myself as another person. I see myself as, you know, as me to whom things happen, you know, that, that, that things happen to me. I don't see myself as having much of a personality at all, although now I know I have one because people tell me I do endlessly. Uh, but that's kind of the fun part is making up, the, making up a story, whether it's just like what happened to you or whether it's a transformed version. Well, we, I did say that's the last question, but to be yeah, fair, give. Um, you have small roles in all your films, and we saw your really funny cameo in the new one. Um, is that something you look for when you're writing, to put, you know, for a fun thing to put yourself in? Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> um, I, 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 yeah. I, 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 li I like acting. I don't act professionally. I don't get offered any acting roles, and I don't wish to audition. So I write myself a little part now and then, just for fun. <laughs> um, really, that's all there is to that. 
So it, it, does it give it any that particular character a particular significance? Because I think it does no. for us. What should we go? Ah, it's not meant to. And now that I'm a very minor celebrity, I think it's a little more difficult to <laughs> to. I don't want to. I don't want to give any additional value to the part a part that I play. I mean, I don't want to. Oh, there's the director like that. So I think I think the answer to that will be bigger parts. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> because because you'll forget. You know that I'm the director after a few minutes, and then you'll be able to really enjoy my work as a as an actor. <laughs> well, with that to look forward to, and also for those of you who have not yet seen Manchester by the Sea, I thoroughly recommend it. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much for your questions, but most of all, Catherine, thank you very much.